All right, well, last week we began our study looking at liberal Christianity. And we began by looking at a brief historical survey, which began in what was known as the pre-modern era, which is approximately around 312 A.D. to 1600 A.D. Now, during this time, there was an establishment of what is referred to as Christendom. Now, Christendom was the foundation of a purely Christian earthly kingdom that ruled over all aspects of life and ruled the Western world. And this meant that everyone had a fixed set of beliefs that never changed or was questioned. They believed in an all-powerful and holy God who had revealed himself in both nature and through his holy scriptures. But these scriptures told them that they had offended this holy God, which meant they too needed a Savior, Jesus Christ, to save them from their sins. But also characteristic of this time was that people didn't question the authority structures of the day, which was primarily the church. Now, on the positive side, they believed this was true because there is such a thing as objective truth, a truth that was true regardless of what people think at the time. Now, on the negative side, this meant that they didn't question anything that the authorities said, and they blindly obeyed. And this was exacerbated, as we learned last time, by the fact that many of them were very illiterate and accepted novel and far-fetched doctrines like transubstantiation, which was the product of what we looked at as scholasticism. Remember, scholasticism was kind of this combination of Aristotelian philosophy and scripture, And so this is uh, the kind of doctrines that people fell prey to because of ignorance. However, with the dawn of the Renaissance, a new commitment to learning was beginning to take hold. Of course, we know what the model of the Renaissance was, ad fontes, which means back to the sources. There was a newfound commitment of learning, and with this newfound commitment, brought with it a wealth of new knowledge, which soon flooded the landscape. However, these works were not widely available until the advent of this wonderful machine, the printing press, by Johannes Gutenberg in 1448. But now people with uh, uh, knowledge in their hands uh, were able to have far greater access to learning than ever before. But here's the problem. This newfound learning led to another movement, the Protestant Reformation. This movement, while it's called to uh, return to call to ultimate biblical authority, it also did something else. For the first time since Christendom began, people began to question in large numbers the dictates of the powers that be. Now, as we continue this week, the Renaissance and the Reformation led to what seemed to be an inevitable cultural shift in the West. That's because people had more access to knowledge than ever before. So no longer were they just going to take on faith declarations from on high. No longer would they just believe everything that was told to them. For now, they have the ability to search out knowledge for themselves. Now, on the one hand, this was a good thing. But on the other, it also came with some negative consequences. Specifically, two developments changed the course of things and began what is known as the birth of the modern era. 
which began roughly in 1600 AD and to the middle of the 20th century. But first, the first major movement that we're going to talk about was the Enlightenment, which was approximately the 17th to the 18th century. Now, the Enlightenment was a complete paradigm shift regarding the discipline of epistemology. In other words, the way that people view knowledge. Specifically, Enlightenment thinkers began to argue for the supreme authority and potentiality and unlimited capacity of unaided human reason to uncover truths about the world. So no longer was truth based on an all-powerful God, but now is on the unaided human reason. Universal principles of reason are the standard, they said, of every belief. And so every belief is subject to these universal standards of truth. Now, consequently, this meant that any divine or religious beliefs were now under scrutiny. So, for example, one can no longer assume there is something called sin. One can no longer assume that supernatural events take place or that God, if he does exist, has given proclamations from on high declaring how mankind should live. In just a few short years, things had changed drastically. No longer did they just take God's word for it, but they were questioning God's word at every turn. Now, as you can imagine, this dramatic paradigm shift brought about great consequences to Western culture. And this is because once you subject divine revelation to human reason, you have utterly overturned the biblical worldview. But here's the problem. Enlightenment thinkers just declared that all divine revelation is subject to human reason without providing a sufficient case of why they should do this. They just declared it to be so without showing why it was so. And really, this is intellectually dishonest, isn't it? Just to declare human reason is the standard of truth when since the birth of humanity, mankind has always believed that truth comes from the divine, right? So what caused them to have this sudden boldness and confidence that human reason trumps the divine, right? However, regardless if one thinks this was intellectually honest or not, the matter of the fact is, is that it happened. So the question again is why did this happen? What caused this paradigm shift? Now certainly, it was partly because there was a great deal of dissatisfaction with the order of things. After all, both the papacy and kings abused power by declaring that people should unquestionably obey them because God said so. As we know, the Pope declared himself to be Christ's representative on earth, right? And there was a thing called the divine right of kings, which gave monarchs license, or at least they thought, to do as they wished. And for a long time, this really did work. As we already noted, people were illiterate and were not able to decipher what God had really said. However, instead of achieving a balance in which both the population at large is literate, 
but at the same time still holds to divine authority, which, by the way, many cultures in the Reformation who were affected by the Protestant Reformation, that they did achieve that. Like in Geneva, for example, very literate society, and yet they maintained the doctrine uh, of divine uh, sovereignty. Uh, they were very literate as well as in the scriptures, and they believed it. But not so in the Enlightenment, because during the Enlightenment, there was a pendulum swing completely to the other side. And they rejected divine revelation almost unequivocally. Now, as you can imagine, with this thought process led to a mass erosion of belief in religious claims. Now, this start, started with a shift in the belief about God. As people began to look at mankind's uh, state in the world, some could not imagine how a God who claims to be active in the world would be so curiously silent. How is it that, and we even hear this today, how is it that God, who is good, could allow such pain and suffering in the world, right? That's not a, that's not a new argument. It's as old as Job, as we heard, right? Remember? It's a very old argument. But nevertheless, they didn't read the book of Job, did they? No, this led some to doubt the claims of Scripture that God was actively involved in the world. Now, eventually, these thoughts led to what was referred to as deism. Deism is basically the belief that God is like a curious clockmaker, the master clockmaker, that he created the world, he wound it up and just let it be, just to see what it would do. Deism rejects the notion that God is involved in the world and instead insists that he's just observing, just to see what we will do. However, the belief in a God who is absent can't be maintained long, can it? Why? Because before long, you begin to wonder, is there a God or is there some other explanation to the world? And this is what led this man you know, Charles Darwin, to seek another explanation, which led to his theory of evolution. You see, deism was the prevailing view of God in Darwin's day, but the young scientist began to notice a problem. You see, while deism rejected God's interference with the affairs of men, they did hold to his excellence in creation. He was described, after all, as the great clockmaker. But this implies that there is a great design in all the world, giving credence to the great designer. But here's the problem. Darwin, being a scientist, he observed what looks like to him in the world as not something of great design perfection, but all he saw was disorder and chaos. So he began to ask himself, how could it be that a perfect designer would create the world in which death and decay was possible? How is it that a perfect designer could allow the chaos of space where stars die and planets collapse upon themselves? No, in Darwin's mind, he saw only chaos and destruction, not design and purpose of a clockmaker god as the deist had claimed. Now, Darwin's views represented another de-evolution in thought. First, 
The descent from Christianity to deism removed God's continual involvement in the world after creation. But Darwin's theory took it another step. For he said it is dubious if God, if he really does exist, really had any role in the formation of the world. This is what Darwin's view was. Because in Darwin's mind, his conception of God was a deistic one, where God is merely concerned with orderly creation. So you can see this dev- the evolution and how it uh, comes about. But the more you go down this road, you begin to think, if God is truly this uninvolved in the world, and now is dubious whether he had much to do with creation, is God really necessary? I love this, this saying, it's actually uh, uh, anonymous who said this, but for a God who is silent must give way to a God who is not there at all. What kind of God is the deistic God, really? All he does is create the world and let it go. He has no involvement in all, and therefore man begins to ask himself, why do I need God at all, right? The point is that the step from deism to atheism is not that drastic. Not at all, because the biggest step came is when they abandoned the God of the Bible. Right? Now, regarding Enlightenment thought, it is characterized as foundationalists. And they were foundationalists. Foundationalist thought can be summed up this way that all true knowledge is characterized as being beyond all reasonable doubt. Now, the question is is how do we determine that true knowledge is without doubt? Well, for the uh, foundationalists, it was found in two different ways. First, the universal principles of reason, and the second way was empiricism. Now, early foundationalists said that if you cannot use these two principles to determine if something is true, it must be denied outright. Now, the universal principles of reason are things like the rules of logic and inference. For example, the logical principle of the law of non-contradiction, some of you may be, this, actually that's the mathematical um, uh, equation of it, which, don't ask me to, what all those symbols are, I am not a math person, I wish Rich Jones was here to be able to help me with this this evening. But I'm taking the word for it, that is the mathematical um, uh, uh, equation for the law of non-contradiction. But, in short, this is what it means. That something cannot be A, I'm sorry, Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Something cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. So, for example, I cannot be a father and not a father at the same time, can I? Now, there was a time when I wasn't a father, right? In the past, many years ago, close to 19 years ago, I wasn't a father, but now I am. But furtherly, there's a relational aspect to this too. Because in one sense, I am a father to my sons, but I'm not Pastor Jack's father, am I? It's a different relationship, right? So I can't at the same time not be a father, and the same time in the same relationship. None of us disagree with that, right? 
Am, am I accepting that? None of us disagree that you can be a, a father and a, not a father at the same time, right? In the same relationship. Okay, just to be sure, because there are people today who do reject this, believe it or not. I don't know how, but they do. So really, this has to, these kind of uh, truths, the point is, deal with big picture, universal realities of the world. These kind of ideas um, are in the realm of the abstract. In other words, you don't see in the physical form the law of non-contradiction, do you? It lives in the realm of ideas. It's abstract. These are truths, this is the point, that are not subject to change. No. So as we will see, the Enlightenment thought, they did believe in universal truth. And this is what's eventually going to lead to the problem. So keep that in mind. So while they're rejecting God, they are not rejecting universal objective truth. Now the second leg of establishing truth is empiricism. Now empiricism establishes truth by means of our sense perception. So in other words, it's truth obtained in how we experience the world. Now these, unlike... The, uh, the universal principles of reason, these live in the concrete world, the world of the physical, things that we can see, taste, touch, so forth. They're connected with the physical world, and therefore they do not belong in the realm of the abstract. Yes, David? I just want to point out uh, that one of the first things asserted in Genesis is basically that as a human, you can possess like absolute knowledge that is true and beyond reason to doubt it mm-hmm. and then still doubt it because that's what Adam and Eve did right and so um, like the, the Bible contradicts the idea that empiricism is really worthwhile like on the face of it Right, right, yeah, and we'll, we'll see, we're going to see that uh, there, there, what the issues are of relying on these solely, solely. in other words, by themselves. Right, because it doesn't right. It, it is how we ascertain the truth. That's right. But it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's constraining to say if you can't measure right. it, feel it, touch it, taste it, smell That's it, right. then it can't be. Right. We know this the scripture talks about the spiritual realm. That's right. So, for example... Again, back to the picture y'all were laughing at a minute ago. Take this proposition. I see a cat on a mat. Now, how does one with certainty declare that they see the cat on the mat? Well, it's by means of their sense perception, the fact that you can see it, the fact that you can touch the cat or smell the cat if you like. I don't know why you do that, but if you like. But it is one of your senses. Now, as we will see, getting to Dave and Steve's point, there will be major problems on basing this as the sole foundation of truth. These are merely tools that God has given us. On the one hand, here's some of the problems. Later foundationalists begin to see the problem. What about supernatural events? How can these be explained by one unaided human reason and by uh, experience, solely on human experience. So they will try to adapt these principles to arrive at that truth. However, the true reason why simply relying on these two foundations is futile is because while these two principles are true, 
They cannot be divorced from the greater reality from which they are based. That is the reality that these principles flow from the mind of the Almighty God. But further the problem is that this flat out denies the idea of noetic sin. Right? The noetic effects of sin. In other words, sin affects the mind. It corrupts it. Man cannot reason uh, perfectly because of sin. Now, for the foundationalist, for the enlightenment man, they just assume mankind can arrive at perfect understanding without any aid. But Paul tells us something different, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 1, you all know this verse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. But according to Paul, that darkness implies inability. As he says further in 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So mankind's ability to discern truth on their own was taken away from him at the fall. And unless God grants new life, they will not be able to see the truth. But even at that, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. Sin still affects us. It still is a part of our members, right? So until glorification, we will not be able to have unaided human reason, so to speak, in the sense that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why we marvel at Christ. Yes, absolutely. And how he was able to maneuver through the uh, traps and techniques of the Pharisees or Sadducees. Um, yes, he is the God-man, and there's a mystery there. But he also, as touching his human side, mm-hmm. as I said, he had the unhindered human mind. That's right. In which we can't equate. So, no. Um, he was wise, possibly because he had an unhindered Mind that was not right. by sin. That's right. Yeah, and, and in addition to, um, there are times where his deity informed his humanity yes. as well. So, but at the same time, what you do find is that humankind, um, Adam, would have had that same sort of ability. And in lies the mystery of then why did he fall, yeah. right? Again, that's in the mystery of the secret things of, of our God, right? As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. But yet at the same time, that is what we're looking forward to as well. The fact that you, you can't remember where your keys are, then even though you just had them five minutes ago, um, that's because of sin, right? That's because of sin. We don't kind of take those things for granted because we live in a sinful world. But all the negative things, the, the things of forgetfulness and all the... Um, you can't remember and all these other things is due to the fact that sin that, uh, affects our minds. And so therefore, ultimately, we can't trust our ability to reason. Ultimately, can we? Because we are prone to sin. We are prone to corruption. Thing we see through a glass darkly, right? Now, before we begin looking at Enlightenment thinkers, it's also important to look at another shift which helped lead to this drastic change. Now, during this period, there was a scientific revolution 
which changed the basis for scientific method. New technologies were being invented left and right. And this changed man's ability to see things in a new way. Is he able to observe the world in a much more succinct way, right? But with this scientific boom, this led to industry as well, right? We all are familiar with this. We studied it in school more than likely, the Industrial Revolution. I know I spent needless time, at least I thought, in government class on the Industrial Revolution. I didn't really care to think about that, especially in economics, right? But this really was an important time because science began to help improve the lives of people. As we know, steam and electric power move things ahead drastically, right? We talk about the uh, advancement in technology that we see today. Um, just as, as an example, uh, there is, uh, it is actually estimated that there is more um, uh, computing power in a Casio calculator from the 1980s than there was on the first Apollo mission on the computer. That, that's about 20 years, 20 years. Uh, you know, in that little calculator, there was more processing power than the entire Apollo shuttle or craft. Uh, and so you can see how things exponentially happen. This really is where it began. The exponential increase in technology began during the Industrial Revolution. But of course, with this improvement of the overall quality of life, there was also a shift in worldview because many of them were attributing scientific method, not prayer, to improve the quality of life. Many began to think that the power of human reason, not divine favor, was making the world a better place. So hubris was the attitude among many who led this revolution. What couldn't man do? This was the, really the motto of the day. As we will see, this is what leads to uh, the golden age, as it is referred to. Of course, later on, there will be a bubble that will burst that will uh, uh, dispel this uh, illusion. But for now, mankind really has high hopes for himself. Perhaps one day through science, powered by human reason alone, he would finally achieve utopia. Right? That's still alive today. Yeah, it's still still alive today. And still still alive today. But it wasn't just the fact that mankind could do this all on his own. But also, he thought that through scientific method, they could now explain all sorts of natural phenomena without acknowledging the, the divine. So for example, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and probably since probably the beginning of time, it was widely believed, for instance, that thunder and lightning were God showing his displeasure with mankind, right? It was his righteous and holy wrath upon humankind. But now, through scientific method, it is shown that all it is is electrical charges in clouds. They're able to analyze this. So it's not God who's doing this, right? Also, it was discovered that sickness 
is caused by small organisms like bacteria and viruses. They had microscopes where they could see this stuff now. So it's not a curse from the wrathful hand of God. So you can see a worldview shift. Yes, you can kind of with the examples you can kind of tell that they're just deleting the telos from thinking about mm, anything like absolutely. that there is an ordained means just because with the scientific thinking they can't figure out a telos for every little thing right therefore if I can't see it it doesn't exist that's right and really that that's that goes back to the, the fundamental principles right the un, uh, the principles of, of universal reason or empiricism because how can you uh, either explain that from, from just principles of reason or uh, from empiricism. When empiricism, for example, you, you can't you can't uh, put God under a microscope, right? You can't see God. You can't um, God. God. You can even uh, apply uh, basic human reason principles to God. What what is infinity? You know what 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 you know all the things that apply to man eternity. That 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 is not what we see in the world. And so you can see this caused great consternation in the minds of the Enlightenment thinkers. As, and that's why they wanted to outright reject God uh, the later and the more that they started to develop their way of thought. Is that this did not line up with what they will, uh, with, with their principles. Of course, later on we will see those principles will uh, collapse upon themselves and will uh, have the rise of what was later known as postmodernism. Uh, but for the time being, they were happy to live in their little world, right, of, of the universal principles of reason and empiricism. There wasn't too much challenge uh, for, for them during this time. So you can see that this newfound independence led to a complete and cultural uh, worldview shift where God was the focus at one time, but now man is the measure of all things. The uh, mindset began to be that I no longer need God to fulfill my needs. I can fulfill them on my own. I can go, now though the advent of the Industrial Revolution goods became more plentiful. Things be able to, uh, you, you could just go buy, go to the store. Things that we take for granted today, go be able to go to the grocery store whenever we want to. Um, that This just started to take place during this time. And mankind started to see his, or he thought to see his own potential. And so he could satisfy his own desires. <coughs> and now I don't have to obey and appease a God in heaven. You see, so you can see the mindset and the philosophy that will start to drive these kinds of thinkers. Hey Jordan, it's, mm -hmm. like, it's like uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Right? Looking out at his kingdom, look at what my hands have produced. Yes. Yeah, that's a great, look at yeah. All that I have done. That's right. And before the words could leave his mouth. As, that's exactly right. And as, as we, and I love that example because what does it show? He, it says he became insane, right? Eventually, after the, the, the seven cycles or whatever it was that he, he had to live as a beast eating, he said he looked his eyes to heaven and his sanity was restored. And he was subhuman. He was subhuman for all that time. And really, that's what we're seeing today is people are living in a subhuman way. They're rejecting God. They are trying to satisfy themselves with their own desires. 
And God is not going to let that go without consequence. And yet, and yet they're, yeah. they're still not happy. No, they're not. That, that happiness that they're pursuing in other things but God mm-hmm. is still leaving them empty. That's right. As Augustine said, I can only, I'm, my heart is resting until I find rest in thee. Right? Um, you will not find satisfaction until you find it in the Lord. So there may be an illusion for a time that we found a way. Find, again, what is this? this? This is the same act of the garden. The same act of the garden, trying to find a way without God. And yet at every turn in history, God shows that this is impossible. And he humbles mankind. David? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about uh, That's right. He was never chased around by any of his cohorts or anybody else going out there. That's right. Trying to drag him back. Yeah. He was having. He was left to himself to figure it out. Why aren't we? Well, yeah. It, well, it's in a case that they, they they had basically given up on him and thought he had gone insane. And so, um, but yet we know that um, oftentimes uh, with with this culture, um, there will be the Daniels who will proclaim God's truth and will be a witness and testimony against the ungodly. And that way, again, they will be without excuse uh, because not only has God written himself in creation, he has provided the means, especially to this world, especially to this culture, the gospel has reached the, the furthest points of the world. And so there is no excuse for this world in which we live, um, even more so than ever before. And so uh, God, uh, God will not be mocked. That's the point. God will not be mocked. And so next time, we will, uh, now that we've taken a look at the background leading up to the Enlightenment, we'll begin to look at some major thinkers that help shape the Enlightenment worldview. And of course, eventually, this will lead to our ultimate topic as we're looking at liberal Christianity. But it starts here. It starts in the Enlightenment. And you can see the erosion beginning to take place that there's a rejection of God and there is in the seed for disbelief, right? Hey, if you want mm-hmm. to see a good sermon, John McCarthy did one on God will not be mocked. Yes, yeah. It's an excellent sermon on that. All right, anything else? Yeah, Steve? Uh-huh. Uh, you've walked us through years ago um, with uh, the study, um, but as a, as a Christian, we, we serve and know the God of all truth. Mm-hmm. And so the Christian... Uh, is not pitted against science, mm-hmm. meaning that um, non-believers, secularists, think that the Christians just walk by blind faith and that they can't contend with science and the knowledge of the world. Right. Uh, but no, we serve a God, and like we've studied, we are not to give ground on certain rational, logical principles. That's right. We can never convince someone logically to believe in Christ. It takes a spirit but we are told to give a, a reason for our belief. And we can do that with rationality mm-hmm. and knowledge and science uh, because we serve a God of all truth. That's right. That's right. And as I love what Calvin said, the, the whole point of apologetics, that's what we're kind of studying here in an in indirect way, um, the, you know, the defense of the faith, is the fact that part of it is to not necessarily convince believers, but to shut the mouths of the unbelievers. Yeah. Um, to show them that um, they really don't have a leg to stand on. Um, And how do you do that? 
you attack their foundations. You attack their presuppositions. These are the ways in which we have to be able to show them that really what they're holding to is untenable, that in the long run, this will lead to their destruction. And so um, uh, Christians have a bad rap today of being anti-intellectual because they're a lot of, especially in the West, they're so driven by their feelings and emotions that they have rejected um, uh, the, the foundations, really, of their hope is based in truth and doctrine. These, again, as Luther said, that is to grab the goose by the neck, right? So that is really where it's at. So you understand what you believe. Why do you believe? When someone, as Peter says, goes to you and asks you for the reason and the joy that's in you, can you actually give them a reason? Or are you just going based on fluffy feelings, right? 